0: Hey, so today's episode is actually sponsored by me, yours truly. If you've been listening to The Virtual Couch for a little while now, you've heard me mention typically right after the intro that I've uh, recently co-authored a book along with author Josh Shea, who wrote a book called The The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. And our book is called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An Expert and a Former Addict Answer Your Questions. And I've already been taken to task by kind emailers and clients alike for uh, when I say that it's not quite a page turner in the likes of John Grisham or Catherine Stockett. And I've simply said those things out of humor because I really am grateful, first of all, for Josh asking me to be the co-author of this book. And you'll hear more from Josh and me about this book in a future episode. But quickly, after he released his first book, The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About... He went on to some uh, do some 70 or more radio and TV and podcast interviews, and he came back to me and pitched a book idea because he said that he felt more of, uh, of a connection with me. And again, I'm really grateful. So quickly, the book has chapters that are full of questions that are asked by people truly in the thick of things. People who have just discovered that their spouse has been looking at uh, pornography or maybe acting out uh, with compulsive sexual behavior for years, sometimes even decades without their knowing, or that they had said that they were fine or that they had stopped previously but continued to act out hiding what they were doing and often making their spouses feel bad for even following their own instincts or intuition or or even just asking questions. or sometimes worse, just flat out denying that their spouse uh, the, the information or data their spouse was presenting to them as clear evidence of the betrayal. And I understand that from someone who has worked with again 11, 1200 uh, people who have been trying to overcome um, pornography. So let me quickly read just a couple of the reviews that are coming in from the advanced copies of the book that were sent out to some professionals in the field, and then we're going to get on to today's show. Here's a review from Carol Jorgensen Sheets. She's a licensed clinical social worker. She's, she's a certified sexual addiction therapist. She's the author of Help Her Heal, an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal. She's host of Sex Help with Carol the Coach and Partner Betrayal Recovery Podcast. And Carol said, Compulsive problematic sexual behavior is riddled with denial, and the authors cut through the normal defense mechanisms that occur to keep this problem a secret. They show great empathy for the spouse, who naturally wonders if she wasn't enough, and this book cuts to the chase and helps the reader find hope and strength and recovery through the chapters. She said, It's as if you were in the office talking to a counselor and a sex addict. And they are reading your minds as a couple who are seeking help for the first time. Tony Overbay and Joshua Shea show a real passion for helping to navigate you through the process of porn addiction recovery. I love that one. And one more today. Um, This is from Mark Golston, and he's an MD. He's the author of uh, Just Listen and Discover the Secret to Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone, which is a great book. He says, this is one of the most helpful books for porn addicts and the people who still love them. One of the most courageous and timely books to help with a widespread and almost never talked about epidemic that is ruining marriages, careers, and lives. It will give hope to millions of people who are addicted to pornography. And I love that um, because he's absolutely right. This book does give hope to people who are really struggling with their addiction. So I highly encourage you to find the book on Amazon. Pre-order it, add it to your wish list, share it with somebody that you might know that's dealing with betrayal trauma. Who might be going through a rough patch again as one of the reviewers said this is for both the betrayed as well as the addict i promise you this really is a book full of hope so look for the link in the show notes or go find it on amazon and uh, let's get to the show The, aid of the virtual couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father, four, ultra marathon runner and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anybody that you know is struggling to put pornography behind them once and for all, and trust me, it can be done and a strength-based hold to shame, become the person you always knew you could be way, then please head over to pathbackrecovery.com. And there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make, when trying to get rid of pornography once and for all. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. And please visit the Virtual Couch on Instagram where you'll find weekly questions and answers, typically midweek, as well as a little bit of Instagram TV by the end of the week. You can follow along there. You can find the Virtual Couch page on Facebook as well as Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist there as well. Go like them both. Why not? And if you have a minute, and I had asked for this as a birthday present, and people did uh, do uh, some reviews and some uh, subscriptions and sharing and that sort of thing. And I'm truly grateful my birthday was over the weekend, so it's never too late for a belated birthday gift. But, uh, but if you have a minute and you've enjoyed some of the Virtual Couch podcast material, please just do me a favor and then do please head over and rate or review or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And that does help get the podcast in front of more people. And if you heard the ad at the beginning of the podcast, you already heard uh, more about my book, He's a Porn Addict Now What? An Expert and a Former Addict to Answer Your Questions. It's now available for pre order on Amazon. And a lot of the reviews are now posted on the Amazon link as well. So I'll spare you uh, reading some of the reviews again, but they're just, they're, they're encouraging. And uh, honestly, it's um, kind of unbelievable to hear some of the feedback of even some of the professionals who've read this, as well as some of the people that have been in the thick of betrayal trauma who have gotten some advanced copies. So please follow the link in the show notes and, and go check it out. I would be forever grateful for that as well. All right, let's get on to today's show. This is one of those that I've been wanting to do for a pretty long time. A former two-time virtual couch guest, Christine Hammond, host of the very, very informative podcast, Understanding Today's Narcissist. Um, she's done an episode on narcissism and one on borderline personality disorder that I'll also include the links to those in the show notes. And those are absolutely phenomenal. And they're, they're informative. And I hear people refer often to those in my, honestly, in my office in my practice, as well as via email, but so I've been wanting to to talk about something that she posted about, wrote an article about a little while ago, and so um, I had had a client ask me actually if I was familiar with the concept of trauma bonding, and this is one of those moments where um, I have to practice what I preach, I have to be completely honest and vulnerable and authentic and raw and all of those wonderful things. But, you know, a lot of times I feel like, man, how have I missed trauma bonding? And so I wasn't really familiar with the concept. And so she pointed me to Christine's episode on the topic. She had a podcast episode on the topic, and I honestly listened to it once, and then I immediately went through and I listened to it again, which is something I don't normally do. I'm not a guy that watches a movie a second time or reads a book a second time. Um, But with this one, I listened to the episode again because I was was kind of uh, hooked. I was captivated, and it made so much sense especially with a lot of the people that I have been working with for a long time, people who are in relationships with um, people who have narcissistic tendencies or even people with full-blown narcissistic personality disorder. But so the article, um, the article that she actually wrote, an article that uh, was based on the episode she recorded or vice versa. The article is from a website called Psych Central, and it's called How the Narcissistic Trauma Bond Ensnares. And I've now shared this article with a lot of my clients in particular. So just like um, my book looks at, the, uh, at things from the angle that the man is the betrayer or the addict, this article actually will work from the a- opposite angle, the angle of the woman being the narcissist. But you can flip the genders if your situation is different. In my book, we kind of went with the, um, where the data lies. And uh, when it does come to personality disorders, the overwhelming majority of narcissists are men, although personality disorders are no respecter of gender. So I've seen narcissistic women and I've worked with men who have had borderline personality disorder. So I I know that a lot of times people can feel like every article on addiction is uh, coming from the woman as the betrayer and the man is the the betrayed. And most of the articles you'll read on narcissism are coming as the man man is the narcissist and the woman is the one who is... Um, in the relationship with the narcissist. But so, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to point that out before we dove in here. That this one's coming from a little bit of a different angle. So I'm going to read Christine's article and be very upfront with that, of course. And uh, and, and I'm going to point you to her article in the show notes. But I'm, I want to add my own commentary on here as well. So here is the, uh, the article. And again, the article is called How the Narcissistic Trauma Bond Ensnares by Christine Hammond. She starts it by saying, uh, giving an example, she said Katrina couldn't believe how her friend was treating her husband at dinner. She was demanding, controlling, domineering, belittling, unrelenting, sarcastic, and unnecessarily rude. For some time now, Katrina suspected that her friend was narcissistic, and after the evening they spent together, she was even more convinced. So feeling bad for her friend's husband, she gently confronted him, letting him know that she did not agree with her friend's treatment of him. And much to her surprise, the husband minimized the event and said that her comments were not that humiliating. Um, he said there were times when his wife was much worse, and that this was mild by comparison. His response confused Katrina, so she watched and waited just to see how bad things could get and After another gathering, her friend even threw an object at her husband, twisted the truth to make her husband look bad, and called him names. After seeing the dismayed look on her husband's face, Katrina again confronted him, and again he defended his wife, befuddled Christina took to our Katrina took to the internet to explain his response. And what she found was the term trauma bonding, which is loyalty and continued commitment to an abusive person despite the intolerable treatment. And again, let me read that one again. What she found was uh, the term trauma bonding, which is defined as loyalty and continued commitment to an abusive person despite the intolerable treatment. In the case of a trauma bonding to a narcissist, Christine Hammond said there tends to be a persistent denial of the problem even when others bring the evidence to light. So how does this happen to people? And Christine goes into a list that we're going to cover. But just to, to jump in now and kind of give my, my two cents, um, there are a couple of things that I still remember very well, uh, particularly early on in my practice. When, when Christine defines the trauma bond where she talks about its loyalty and continued commitment to an abusive person despite the intolerable treatment, you know, this is the thing where everything I believe is truly on a spectrum. You can look at this, and if somebody right now is saying, "Well, it's not, it's not abusive, or it's not the, the treatment isn't intolerable," um, I, I just kind of want, want you to sit back and just listen to the whole uh, this whole podcast in general, because abuse um, that word even means a lot to different people, and so sometimes when people are in the trauma bond, they don't necessarily want to view this as abuse; they want to see this as. Um, you know, he's just being difficult. Here is where if I'm going from the angle of the husband being the narcissist, or he's had a bad day, or he's tired, or those sort of things. And then when she even d- puts in the definition here, intolerable treatment, a lot of people feel like, well, I'm, I'm making it through. I'm tolerating it. So that doesn't mean, though, that that's a healthy marriage, or that doesn't mean that that's how a marriage should be. So I kind of want to just frame th- this article um, with some of that that understanding. So, and this is pretty deep too, when, when she says in here that there tends to be a persistent denial of the problem, even when others bring the evidence to light. One of the things that I find often is when people do kind of become a little bit more aware that they might be in a relationship with someone who is emotionally abusive or somebody who might have narcissistic tendencies or might even be a full-blown narcissist, a lot of times when they finally kind of take a step back, they, they, a couple of things happen. One is they'll realize that their family or friends have been kind of making them aware of that they don't feel that that treatment's right for a while. But it can be so hard for somebody close to someone suffering um, from narcissistic abuse to even try to bring this to light. A lot of times people try, and I work with people who have tried to bring this up with a family member. A lot of times when people learn that this is a little bit of my area of expertise, um, I will have clients come in and say, "How do I help my? How do I help my sister in law? Or how do I help my? You know, how do I help my brother get out of a relationship with a narcissistic woman or narcissistic man?" And uh, and it's a difficult question because you want to just tell the person, "Hey, you you don't need to be treated that way." But when the person, and that's why I think this concept of trauma bond or ensnared in the trauma bond is so um, important to talk about because when the person is ensnared. A couple of things. One is that you you know sometimes all you can do is just be there for them. Sometimes all you can do is just be the person that is not going to give up on them or is not going to move further away from them. Because there's a concept in narcissism called sequestering, and it comes right out of the you know when you sequester a jury. When you when you sequester a jury, what do you do? You keep them away from everyone else. And and in narcissism, a lot of times there will be a sequestering where the narcissist will tell their partner that they don't want them seeing, you know, so-and-so from their family because they're a bad influence. Or the narcissist will say, you know, you can't talk to your dad anymore because, uh, you know, you guys aren't talking nice about me. Or so this sequestering is a concept where then, you know, whenever a person is being isolated or told you can't talk to certain people, you can't talk to your family, you can't talk to your kids, you can't talk to your, you know, uh, your, your pastor, you can't talk to your bishop, you can't talk to your um, ministering folks that come to see you. That's uh, that's not not okay. It's not a it's not a healthy relationship. So Christine says, "How does this happen to people? How do they get ensnared in this trauma bond?" The first thing that she points out is an ignorance of abusive tactics. And uh, I'm going to try not to say that every single one of these points is an amazing point, but uh, this first one, these are all so powerful to hear. Sometimes people hearing these for the first time. Most people are conditioned to believe that abuse requires some sort of physical mark and only happens to uneducated people. And and I love that she includes that, that only happens to uneducated people, because I think a lot of people will recognize that abuse doesn't necessarily have to to have some sort of physical mark. Not even, I mean, let me take that back, not even necessarily a lot of people, but a lot of the people that I'm working with that are that uh, that maybe otherwise, I mean, they, they live in nice neighborhoods, they have a nice house, they vacation well, they do these sort of things. They're going to say, okay, this isn't abuse. You know, I'm not being... I'm not being hit or, you know, that sort of thing. But Christine points out that there are seven categories of abuse. There's physical abuse, which is the one that we kind of know about. There's emotional abuse, which is a lot of what uh, happens in relationships with narcissists. Um, There's verbal abuse. There's mental abuse. There's sexual abuse. There's financial abuse. And there's spiritual abuse. And we could do a podcast on all of these I mean financial abuse is overly uh, controlling of the finances in the home. Spiritual abuse is oftentimes when someone is is um, you know, they can be spiritually gaslighting someone they can be telling someone that even their ideas of uh, of God or their ideas of what they feel is right spiritually are wrong so and most studies show that abuse is prevalent in all socioeconomic groups, cultures, intelligence levels, and ages so thinking that quote it can't happen to me is the easiest way to fall prey to an abusive person. So, again, those um, seven categories, physical, emotional, verbal, mental, sexual, financial, and spiritual. And the sexual abuse isn't always even just what we think of when we when we think of the term sexual abuse. Sexual abuse can also be um, withholding sex, demanding sex, uh, leveraging with sex, uh, manipulating with sex, all of those things um, are also fall into that uh, concept of sexual abuse. The second thing that she brings to light on how does this happen to people, how do they get ensnared in this narcissistic trauma bond, she calls it the attractive abuser. She said that narcissists are famous for looking good in front of others with their charming personality or attractive appearance. And uh, and actually, before I get into this one, let me just say that we're not trying to do a checklist that you must have all of these things if to, to say that you're ensnared in a... And a trauma bond, but these are just a lot of the components of the trauma bonding. So, um, again, a narcissist famous for looking good in front of others with their charming personality and attractive appearance. During the initial engagement with the narcissist, they tend to become everything the other person is looking for in a partner. They love-bomb the person with generous amounts of affection or attention and gifts, and the prospective partner believes that this is the real person. But it's not, and this is the this, she says, this shell game can only last so long, which is why they move relationships very quickly and into something more permanent. So a lot of times the, with this concept of the attractive abuser, I've worked with a lot of people who uh, come to me after they've been through a few relationships with narcissists. Uh, and again, I'm going to work from the, if I get a woman in my office who has been through a couple of narcissistic men, a lot of times they'll say, hey, my picker's broken and, and I, how do I trust myself? And I think this is pretty fascinating, where a lot of times it is this love bombing. It's this generous amounts of attention, affection, gifts. And, uh, and I often say, you know, the, the kind of, quote, normal um, person can be the one that seems a bit boring. You know, hey, let's get together and uh, let's go grab a yogurt or let's uh, just go to dinner and, and kind of just see if we, what we think about each other. The attractive abuser, the narcissist often says, hey, I've got a plane and let's, f- you know, let's fly down to Southern California for lunch. And if you think I'm kidding, that one happens often. I mean, that one happens often. Or uh, you know, let's uh, let's just why not? Let's just go. Away. I've got we'll get two beds and let's go on a on a vacation to Disneyland and um, let's do that this weekend. So the nar- the prospective partner believes that this is the real person, but this is uh, this is more of just this um, this mask of the narcissist, this attractive abuser. Uh, the the next thing, so the third thing she's talked about. So the first one was ignore ignorance of abusive tactics. The second one is the attractive abuser. The third one is initial angry outbursts. So in the beginning, when the narcissist explodes, it seems so out of character. So the partner easily accepts the narcissistic explanation of blame shifting as an excuse for their behavior. And uh, Christine says, slowly, the narcissist starts to criticize their partner by saying things like, you made me so mad. The partner desperately wanting to things to return back to their initial encounters molds themselves into whatever the narcissist says they need. And unfortunately, one transformation is not enough, and the narcissist begins to demand more and more. And so, man, this, in every one of these, I, you know, I've been working in this uh, field, working with women, especially, particularly women who are in relationships with narcissistic men for a very long time. And so, I can, I just have so many examples that come to mind here where, you know, narcissist explodes. You'll see somebody explode at a, you know, at a waiter um at, at a restaurant or explode with somebody even in their family or somebody that uh, – a lot of times it is people who are um, I don't know maybe that are uh, what's the what's the phrase there there uh, people that are trying to help people desk uh, clerks or, or you know these sort of things where somebody just explodes the the narcissist just explodes and then this blame shifting that it was either man I'm sorry I have just had a bad day or I haven't gotten a lot of sleep or I was just so angry about the traffic on the road or then a lot of times it'll turn around into you know, you, you made me feel that way. Like you've just kind of been hounding me all day and I've just really frustrated or you couldn't make up your mind uh, when they were asking what you wanted. And so finally, I, I just couldn't take it and I exploded. But if you would have just made up your mind quicker. And so this is where we start to see the uh, kind of the initial, what what eventually grows into some pretty big gaslighting conversations. Um, narcissistic trauma bonding. The next point she makes is, uh, this one's where things kind of get, uh, I mean, they're, they're, all, they're all real, but uh, this is where it gets pretty... Um, I don't know where I I see things really start to shift in the relationship. Um, Christine says it becomes addictive. So the harder it is to please the narcissist, the harder the partner tries. Achieving some small token of gratification becomes a drug of sorts. The partner gets a high out of obtaining even small amounts of the love bombing from before. And it's no different than an addiction to a drug. The first trip is the best and everyone after that fails by comparison. Yet the person is hooked. So they keep trying over and over. The partner becomes becomes unable to see their own fall in this downward spiral. And the reason why I kind of paused a little bit before I, I started talking about this concept of it becoming somewhat addictive is I've had a couple of clients that I've been able to work with for a while that uh, I really feel like have been able to you know build rapport, uh, gain trust, um, mutual trust. And when when people kind of start to come to terms with this this it becomes addictive. That's uh, that's a really big realization where when the the person who's in the relationship with the narcissist starts to recognize that they almost start to do anything they can to make the narcissist happy. This is the one where um, a lot of times where I feel like even things like the sexual abuse comes into play, or even the spiritual abuse comes into play, where the the partner who is um, in the relationship with the narcissist will knows that, okay, you know, if, if we'll just end up having sex, then everything's going to end up being fine, even if I don't want to, even if I told the person that I'm not in the mood, or that I don't feel well, or um, a lot of times, this is where it will finally lead to the person who is being abused by the narcissist to finally just feel like you know what it's not worth arguing, and so they kind of give in to the gaslighting. Okay, you, you know what, you're right, you're right. I wasn't being very Christ-like right there. Where again, that's not a productive thing to say. So it becomes addictive, and uh, people continue to try to just do whatever they can, and sometimes they scramble because they they have kind of uh, basically have all a few things in their you know quote bag of tricks um, to be able to try to appease the narcissist, and so they go through them very quickly. Trying to find the right one that in that moment will make the narcissist calm down, and uh, and I think that in that too, what's pretty fascinating is it says the harder it is to please the narcissist, the harder the partner tries, and I think this is one of those things where people that are in relationships with narcissists continue to try and find or say or do the thing that they feel like will cause the aha moment for the narcissist, and uh, and sometimes it you know it still kind of is hard or breaks my heart to say to the person who's in the relationship with the narcissist that that's one of the things that uh, that I question or challenge the people that I work with is to say hey we kind of need to to not look for that one thing the 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 thing you'll say or the thing you'll do that will cause your partner to have that aha moment because you know we kind of sometimes have to work under the the assumption that there is not an aha moment because this is a type of personality disorder. So this is something where the person, the narcissist, again, if you kind of go look deep into the diagnoses, um, they're not doing anything that is out of common with their view of sense of self. So to them, this is that concept. If you go back and listen to some of the episodes I've done, it's called uh, an ego syntonic view of the person, a uh, personality. So they really don't feel like they're doing anything different, which is why it's so easy for them to kind of latch on and, and, uh, and, and emotionally manipulate or at times emotionally abuse their partner to try and, and uh, you know, not take ownership or accountability of the things that they've done or said, because at their core, they truly don't feel like they've done anything wrong, that it really was everyone else's fault. Uh, the next thing that uh, Christine mentions that can cause people to fall into this is... Um, to snare them in this trauma bond, says addictions have rewards and consequences. So she said the reward of addiction, in this case, pleasing the narcissist, is a release of the happy hormone dopamine. And she says this feeling of euphoria can make a person feel that they can do anything. By contrast, the consequence of an addiction, so this is when the narcissist becomes abusive, is a flooding of the stress hormone cortisol. And she said this puts a person in fight, flight, or freeze, or faint mode and diminishes a person's ability to think straight. And Christine said it takes a good 36 to 72 hours for a person to fully recover from this hormone. And I thought this was pretty fascinating. So when I've worked with people with um, stress, anxiety, and you talk about cortisol, you often say that, you know, if uh, let me kind of take you back to a training, actually, that I went to one time. This is a funny story. I think I've told it on some other podcasts. But when I went to one of my first trainings on anxiety, we were learning the concept of where, you know, when someone starts to feel anxious, their their brain is kind of warning them. Their brain thinks that they're doing them a solid and their brain says that, hey, this might happen or this might happen or what if this happens? And so again, that comes from a place of trying to feel like we're we're going to try to figure all these things out ahead of time, all of these potential um, potential things that could go wrong in any situation. And so, but what we start to do is we overthink things and our brain is working hard to try to uh, warn us about things that will most likely never happen, and so when that happens, the more that we think about things, the more we'll get, we'll feel anxious, and our heart rate will raise. And when our heart rate raises, then our all of our our body just thinks, okay, things are about to get real. We're about to, we have to go into fight, flight, or freeze mode because we are about to go into battle. So the more that your stress hormone cortisol uh, floods the brain, the more that prefrontal cortex that uh, that part that is able to make decisions rationally. It takes a back seat because right now, you know, you don't need to be able to rationalize with the saber-toothed tiger. You need to be able to fight or uh, or flight in that scenario. Or I guess where the freeze comes in is the old good old pretend that uh, if I freeze that uh, it won't see me and it'll walk away. But so when your brain's flooded with cortisol, the stress hormone, you go into fight, flight, or freeze mode. At this anxiety training I went to, the person said, hey, the quickest way to get over this is to go to an unobstructed view on top of a mountain. 360-degree view all around you. And uh, and you know he was being kind of funny because not everybody has an unobstructed view from a tall mountain at their ready, but if you're if you're in that environment, that's one of the quickest ways that your body will be able to start to your heart rate will lower. You're breathing in the fresh air. You're recognizing that there are no immediate threats or dangers. And once you start to lower your heart rate, that's when that uh, those levels of cortisol can lower. Um, and that can, and at this training, the person said, you know, and that can take 45 minutes or so. So I've always kind of worked under this, hey, you can get rid of that cortisol and as slower as 45 minutes. But I think what Christine's talking to when she says it takes a good 36 to 72 hours for a person to fully recover from this hormone is that the more I've studied the, um, concept of trauma bonding or the concept of, you know, this narcissistic abuse, this is where it becomes almost PTSD like in the symptoms. That when, when someone in, is in a relationship with a narcissist and they are triggered, uh, their body is uh, going into fight or flight mode almost without them even recognizing. And here's a plug for a, an amazing book called The Body Keeps the Score. And in The Body Keeps the Score, it's a book about trauma, but it goes into some of this concept of the body keeps the score, meaning that, you know, they, they say that these neurons that fire together fuse together. So if the person who's in a relationship with a narcissist is pretty used to um, this emotional abuse, that they're, they're, um, cortisol levels kind of remain high because they're always kind of wondering which which version of my husband am I going to get today? Is this going to be the one that's super happy, or is this going to be the one that's really mad? Is this going to be the one that's going to um, be a fun dad with the kids, or is this going to be the one that's going to say, you know, I, I can't believe the kids are doing these things or saying these things? And so you almost live with this kind of constant state of stress. This this cortisol, this stress hormone, is is constantly um, it's always it's always a little bit higher, and so. In that scenario, it is going to take a lot longer for this, this cortisol to lower if you are already somebody who is in this relationship that, that can be viewed as a bit emotionally abusive. Okay, so let's move ahead. Oh, another funny thing about that training was, uh, so they, the first thing in this anxiety training was they said, go to the top of a mountain. The second thing that uh, the person said that was doing the training he said, you know, or you can have your uh, client go out in the waiting room and tell them to find the Time magazine out there and turn to page 15. And man, I cannot lie for, I hope I want to say it was a millisecond in my mind. I'm like, man, what's on page 15 of the time magazine? You know, I got to get that version or that episode of the time magazine. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's not like, it, you know, time, uh, page 15 could be a, a ad for downy fabric softeners. You know, the whole point is being able to go and focus on something other than the, uh, the stressors or the things that were causing anxiety. Okay. So three more here. Um the next thing that she points out is the addiction the, uh, the addiction is hidden from the addict. So Christine says because the partner is not taking a drug it's very hard to identify that they're even caught in an addictive cycle. This is why the abuse fog she uses that term and I have a lot of clients that do uh, that use that term. This is why the abuse fog becomes so dense and the person is unable to see what's happening. Even when confronted by others outside of the relationship they still struggle to see what is occurring. Plus, the narcissist tends to isolate the partner from anyone and everyone who might be a threat to them. This makes leaving even harder. This is what I talked about earlier, that concept of sequestering. So, it can really be difficult to even understand that you're in this uh, this abuse cycle, and especially because of the isolation. And sometimes, again, it's, it doesn't even have to be the isolation that the narcissistic partner is, um, is putting into the uh, picture. A lot of times, people feel embarrassed to be around their family or friends when they know that they're... Um, that their abuser or their, their partner is not someone that other people want to be around because they, they never know if their partner is going to go off on them as well. Uh, second to last, inability to detach. And this is, again, this is the stuff that gets uh, it's really powerful um, when people have been in a relationship with the narcissist for a long time. That even when the partner wakes up and tries to leave, the narcissist pulls them back with promises of returning things to their former existence. Because the narcissist has an intense fear of abandonment, they cannot allow a person close to them to leave. And they will do or say or fake anything they need just to keep their partner in the relationship. The mask of the narcissist's former self comes out again, but once again it's short-lived. And as soon as the partner is returned, the mask is smashed as the partner is even more ensnared. And so, a lot of times you will find this, that when finally, when the, uh, the person who is in the relationship with the nurses says, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, that's when you will kind of go back to a little bit of that, no, 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 I get it now. You know, I, I'm going to do things different. You know, I, I, I don't want to lose you. And that's where, and, and now if you kind of look at that of where um, there's this addiction, right? There's this piece where then the person who's in this relationship with the nurses, this is all they want. This is all they crave, is to have their partner say, "I get it now. I'll do. I'll, I'll do better. You know. I. I don't. Yeah. You're right. I don't want you to feel like this way. Or, or you know. I'm gonna learn. Or I'm gonna figure this thing out." The last thing that Christine talks about, she says, uh, the last component here is being addicted to the mask. And so this is the part that uh, that I see often. Even when times get bad, the addiction to the mask of the narcissist is so strong now. After all the reinforcement, the fear that life can never be as good without the mask of the narcissist traps the partner into staying. Just the thought of leaving again causes panic attacks, depression, and sometimes even suicidal thoughts. The darker a person gets, the harder it is to take action to leave, which is exactly what bonds them to the narcissist. And so that addiction to the mask, I completely understand. Imagine that if the person that you've been turning to for uh, who knows how long, a decade, two decades, three decades, this is the person that you've turned to to say, am I okay? You know, if we look at the the emotionally focused therapy, the EFT couples therapy that I so uh, talk about often. If you look at that, if you are turning to your partner and, and the tenants underneath this uh, emotionally focused therapy, this EFT, or you're asking your partner constantly, you're constantly kind of putting out these emotional bids saying, you know, do you care about me? Can I count on you? Do you have my back? Do you love me? And if you're putting yourself out there and your um your partner is turning around and saying things like, well, you need to do this different or you're not spiritual enough or you're not having sex with me enough or, you know, uh, you're the one that made me feel this way. You can see how that can start to really, um, it can really start to destroy uh, even the sense of self of the person who is who has put their trust in this partner for so long. And as a matter of fact, this is probably a, a pretty good time to mention that, um, man, if there's ever things that I've been pretty passionate about in the past, some some things that are kind of in the work, some projects that are happening, um, it is on this concept. This concept of this uh, this trauma bond or even almost like the concept of a, of, of a betrayal of from the person who is in the relationship with the narcissist and and you're going to hear a whole lot more about that coming up um, probably in the next uh, couple of months and uh, just I, I I will say more about that when I can and actually if you've listened this long, um, I really would encourage you to shoot me an email at contact at tonyoverbay dot com if you if you might be interested in um, just participating in, and it'll be a a very safe uh, group where there might be some more discussions about um, how to how to manage if that's where you're at, or how to even break free from a relationship that you feel might be with someone who is uh, displaying narcissistic tendencies or may have full blown narcissistic personality disorder. So again, please just shoot me an email. It'll be completely. It only those those that are going to contact at tonyoverbay.com i'm the only one that's going to see those and uh, and of course i'm going to respect uh, your privacy so but uh, but there are some there's some things that are coming in the down the pipe uh, that i think will help with there so addicted to that mask though um, a couple of thoughts that i don't think i hit earlier that i jotted down some notes i still remember and i talked about this one on a couple of other podcasts where i was with a couple and uh, the, the person, that the, the narcissistic guy in the relationship had mentioned that he was, he, he was aware at one point that he was about to lie to his spouse. And so in front of myself and the, the spouse, he said, you know what? I realized that I was, I was about to tell a lie. I don't really know why I was going to do that. And so I didn't. And I still remember this was years ago. And I remember at that moment thinking, uh, and I ended up talking with the client about this often where we would just say, okay, see, um, he gets it. He can get it. But we kept kind of going back to this, okay, remember that one time that he said the thing that was kind of normal and nice? And I still remember that, uh, I still remember when I was kind of putting that piece, those pieces together and saying, wait a minute, that's not how a relationship is supposed to be. You're not supposed to have to think about those times where, wait a minute, he has been nice or he has told the truth. There's, a, you know, when you're thinking there's been a few of those nice times. And so, but those are mixed, uh, you know, for the most part in with these con- these concepts of narcissistic trauma bonding. That's not how it's, you know, again, that's not a normal, healthy relationship. That's not a relationship that you deserve to be in. And, uh, and so if that's the case, you know, the, the relationship is, is primarily we want the relationship to be, be based on a lot of, of good moments, a lot of interactions, a lot of connection. And then there might be some bumpy patches, but, but those bumpy patches are few and far between. And those are things that you can work through either together or through counseling. I mean, that's, uh, that's a big thing as well. So um, that concept, I also get, uh, I, I get this question asked a lot. And again, talk about, I know I said breaks my heart earlier. This is another one of those that really does. When people will say to me, hey, is it normal to not be so excited when I hear my, my partner's car pulling in the driveway or when I hear the garage door open, you know, and, and I just say, man, no, I mean, I, I wish it wasn't the case. I wish that you had that feeling where, man, I can't wait for my partner to get home and I, and I can't wait to share things, with, you know, and I'm sharing things with them throughout the day. And I can't wait to reconnect and talk because that is my secure connection. That's my secure attachment. If that is not your experience, then I really do just, uh, I was going to say, beg of you. I kind of do beg of you, but um, seek help, even if you just need to go talk to somebody yourself. I think that's a great idea. If your partner doesn't want to go to see a therapist, no problem. And if you are going to go see a therapist and you feel like you're partner may display some of these narcissistic tendencies, then please do your research and uh, look ahead and and reach out to some therapists and ask them if they have any um, experience with personality disorders, or or even if you can be completely open and say that, I, hey, I worry that I've, I've listened, I've read a lot of things, and I worry that my partner might be um, uh, someone who struggles with narcissistic personality disorder, or they might have some narcissistic tendencies, and find a therapist who's going to say, all right, hey, I appreciate it. Because here's the thing, if you if you reach out to a therapist who doesn't have any experience with personality disorders they're going to you're going to hear some things like well you know we got to be all on the same page with this and we need to bring this up in therapy or i need you to tell your your husband before you come in and that's that's not the the, the best course of best practices when it comes to somebody who is in a relationship with a narcissist because i understand that it could have been 20 or 30 years into the relationship where the partner finally, thanks to podcasts, thanks to people that have been sharing information with them, where they finally say, okay, I got to do something about this, but I'm afraid. You know, if you're afraid, um, go talk to somebody individually first. Seriously, uh, please do. And uh, and just kind of, you know, learn more about, um, have somebody that you can safe that you can bounce ideas off of and share experiences with. Somebody that, has, that speaks fluent personality disorders or, or perhaps speaks fluent uh, narcissism. Um, okay, the article, uh, she finishes it, Christine finished it by saying, Once C- Katrina understood what was happening to her friend's husband, she employed a different strategy. Instead of trying to wake him up, she came alongside him and offered her friendship to him instead of his wife. This allowed him to feel more comfortable with her, and he eventually confessed his frustration. When Katrina revealed to him her discovery of trauma bonding, he finally took action and began to see a counselor. And I know that that wraps up uh, and then they lived happily ever after. But man, Christine nailed it at the end of this article, because what happens is if you're constantly trying to say, look, you got to wake up, you, you shouldn't be dealing with this. It's, you know, at some point, at some place, the person in that relationship knows that they shouldn't be putting up with this, but there's so much more to it. And so the person does need to have a safe place. They need to have a friend. They need to have somebody that can just listen to them because when somebody says, you need to do something about it, immediately they go into that narcissistic trauma bond. They go into fight or flight mode. And when they go into fight, well, then and it's fight, flight or freeze. They're going into freeze mode typically. And a lot of times that's where they're going to disappear. I've had, I've had clients I've worked with where, you know, we identify these things and, and uh, they might even be telling their their husband that they're working with a therapist and they're trying to become better. And then the, the hard part is once the more they learn, sometimes the more empowered they feel. This isn't the difficult thing. I, I framed that wrong. But then a lot of times, you know, if the narcissist kind of catches wind that their spouse is starting to feel more empowered or starting to ask more questions or starting to set more boundaries, a lot of times the narcissist is going to kind of double down on their emotionally abusive tactics, the gaslighting, the, the withdrawal, the, uh, the emotional manipulation. So, but, so I think it's very important for you to have a safe person, safe place, a professional you can talk to to, uh, to bounce these ideas around. So, hey, I appreciate you sticking around. If you've stuck around uh, this long, then, you know, I I do, if you're in a relationship where you worry about this being ensnared in a trauma bond, or if this does sound like something that you've been struggling with, or that somebody you know is struggling with, first of all, if it's somebody you know, see if you can get them this podcast and let them uh, listen to this or point them to the article that I'll have in my show notes from Christine Hammond um, on this trauma bonding. And if it's something that you're involved in, then do more research. I mean, you're welcome to do that uh do send me an email, contact at TonyOverbay.com. You can let me know that uh you might have identified with some of the concepts of this article or this podcast and that you wouldn't mind uh maybe participating in a, there's gonna be an online group and there might be some more there too that will help you because uh help is out there. I've worked with um I can have countless numbers of people who have recognized that they've been in relationships with um, people that are struggling with narcissistic tendencies or narcissistic personality disorder. And there is hope. I, I promise you there really is hope. And, uh, and you deserve it. You really deserve to be in a healthy relationship or a relationship with somebody who, um, who does care about you. And even if that feels overwhelming or too much, you deserve to have the tools that will help you, what I always like to say, raise your emotional baseline and help you be in a better place so you can be there for your kids or that you can do things that will help make you feel like you are... Um, you matter like you count because you really do. All right. Hey, thanks for sticking around this long. And, uh, and I will see you next time on the virtual couch.